I'm Aaron Berg. I'm many things. A son, a husband, an immigrant, a dad. I'm also a Jew. And I fought every stereotype there is about us. I was a bodybuilder, a male stripper. I worked in the sex trade. I became a stand-up comedian. And I realized that to be Jewish is to be badass. Join me and celebrate all the badass Jews out there. And let me tell you, there are a ton. Business moguls, game changers, assassins. They come from every walk of life. This is Badass Jews. And I'm your host, Aaron Berg. My guest today grew up as one, Damien Black. He's a virtual kaleidoscope of a life, a geographical paradox of humanity that started in no man's land and made his way to the promised land. He went from the rainy city to the holy city. He transcends skin color, transcends religion. He is taking a God-given talent and he's saving the life of himself and those around him with that talent. He went from drug dealer the holy man with a constant through line in his life of hip-hop music. My guest for today on Badass Jews, Nissim Black. Welcome. Thank you very much. I really appreciate it. You're a little, little too flattering there, you know? <laughs> it's good to get <laughs> the full blow smoke up the ass intro out of the way so that we can get <laughs> honest uh, right away, because I know that it's an expression that you hear in hip-hop all the time, but you keep it real as fuck. Uh, you were <laughs> raised you. You. in Seattle. Is that correct? Right, right. Seattle, Washington. Uh, which has gone through so many changes. You look at it now and how sure. it's this political hotbed and, and it's going through this great transition. Um, you have lived a life that is so full. We've had so many guests on that really found their calling early in life and it seems like you went through so much turbulence early in life. Raised a Sunni Muslim, but non-practicing. Right. Converted to Christianity at age 14 after attending an evangelical summer camp. How's that come about? Well, the truth is, I was actually raised, I was raised non-religious. My grandfather was a Sunni Muslim. He came to live with us. Now, he, my grandfather himself, he had spent most of his life in prison, um, which is where he actually converted to Islam. Uh, he came out, he was home for about a year and a half. Uh, within that year and a half, I think he stayed with us for about a year. Um, and during that time, that's when I got introduced to, to Islam. Now, I was only eight years old, seven, eight years old, somewhere around there. So I started uh, I started praying with him five times a day. He would take me to mosque or whatever. So that was the only uh, real um, religious experience I had. You know, I had uncles that would take me sometime to church or whatever. Um, but, you know, that was like, you know, I went to go play and, and eat food afterwards. Um, but in terms of actually being involved, first uh, first thing was Islam. Um, so by the time I ended up, you know, really taking music seriously, I, I was I was 13. I was taking it very, very seriously. Um, and I recorded my first uh, professional song with a producer named Vitamin D from Seattle. He's like a hip hop legend in Seattle. Um, and that same year, a friend of mine. Um, introduced me to a hip hop program that happened to be at this after school center, which was a Christian missionary center. Okay. Um, so I started going there and that became like my second home. And it was good. Cause I mean, it was like a safe haven. It kept me out of the house. You know what I mean? It was a lot of people in and out of my house all day long. You know what I mean? But the center was like, sort of like a, 
uh, a way to escape. And that hip hop program just, you know, obviously was the, the best vessel to be able to write and to be able to create and to, you know, so it gave me that type of space. So when, once they had a camp, you know, uh, for the summer, I ended up going. First, I was hesitant. You know what I mean? Black people don't go camping. You know what I mean? <laughs> I'm from the hood, man. From the hood, man. I'm like, man, we're not going camping. Sitting outside, you know, with uh, with with bears and everything else, you know, on purpose. You know what I mean? Yeah. Uh, but it ended up being a very, very nice retreat, and it was like, uh, it was really like a good getaway, more than it was a camp. There's this notion that we hit upon so often when we're talking to Jewish people and so many Jewish people that we talk to are born Jewish, but they are Jewish, quote unquote, usually reform. Um, And we talk about the notion of legacy and how many Jewish people are born into sometimes a very comfortable life. So they're afforded the privilege to chase their dreams. A, that wasn't the case with you. And B, your legacy was not one of privilege. Your, Your grandfather was in prison. Uh, your parents were arrested, raided. So it's amazing to see what you overcame. An important question here, why is Islam so important and why is it found by people when they're in prison? Um, You know, there's many different flavors. I think what's probably even more, I think, I don't know the statistics, but I think for most people that I know, they end up actually converting to Nation of Islam which is different than being Sunni. My grandfather, why he went the Sunni route, not the nation. You know, I have cousins and other friends that went the nation route. Um, but some of it is that it may speak to, it may speak to anger um, as far as the nation. You know what I mean? It, it just definitely is a way to um, take the the built up emotions that, that are within a person and to sort of, and I, that's like I said on the nation side. Now, I think as far as Sunni Islam, why, you know, some people convert to it, um, I think, you know, it's just sort of out of the norm. I'll tell you like this. My grandfather told me, <clears throat> which I was a little nervous to let him know that I was actually converting to Judaism. <clears throat> and um, he told, you know what he told me? He says, as long as you didn't fall for Christianity, we all good. <laughs> you know what I mean? <laughs> it's, so, it's a scam propagated by the American government, yeah, Christianity. Right, right. No, nah, yeah, I think he's like, and I think the thing is like this, the the Christian hallmark of what religion has been, you know, I mean, people that were in a deeper, I was in a deeper, so I know more than that, but it's been white Jesus, right? So, you know, you speak it to a black population inside of prison, last thing they want to hear about some white savior that's going to whatever. So it has a much less appear, appeal to, to, to such a group. So I think that, that those are the reasons why. It's, a, it's amazing, uh, the differentiation between Nation of Islam, Sunni Muslim, and, and these divisions uh, within a form of unity. Your parents were separated when you were two. You went with your mother. She remarried shortly after. Uh, both your biological parents and stepfather used and sold drugs from home. And as mm-hmm. a result, the FBI raids your house when you're eight years old. Do you have a memory of that? Oh, absolutely, man. I will never forget it. I will never forget it. I mean, I woke up to a loud boom, and I'm talking about like within seconds, everybody around me had guns on them, um, were tied up. My mother, I don't even think she was, she was half dressed, getting ready for uh, work. She had worked in customer service at the time. Um, so she was on the floor with a gun to her back, zip tied. You know, my uncles were moving very, very uh, big amounts. And so the uh you know i don't know what the whole backstory was but i remember later on hearing out my mother was stashing stuff they had already heard that the phones and and everything else were like 
were tripping out a little bit. They heard people early in the morning circling around the house or whatever. So they had started, you know, stashing and everything else like that. So I didn't know that I was asleep. Um, I remember I just, I usually, when they wake me up, I remember as a kid, when, when my parents would wake me up, I go and sit by the heater for like 10 or 15 minutes or whatever and fall asleep before I, you know, I have to really be up and start getting dressed. So instead of that, I, I went to sleep on the couch and that's why I woke up to everybody. Like, and, and I never forget, they got me dressed. The, one of the lady officers helped me get dressed and they sent me to school and I left everybody in the house was in handcuffs. I had no idea what was going to be when I got home. Or you go to school. That. They send you to school I, while they're arresting school? your whole family. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> you, you're uh, eight. And I came you back. Can't I, be I in a good mood. No, for sure. I was. I was like tripped out and startled, and like that whole school day. Like I was just like, I was finished. You know, I didn't know what to think. I didn't know if anybody was going to be home. I didn't know. You know, um, it was a very very tough time. Your mother later died from an overdose at 37. Um, I mean, for you to live like that, how how old were you when that happened? I was 19. I was 19. Did was you hard. did you know that was going to happen? Did you have a feeling? Yeah, I had was a the way- feeling. Be- I had a feeling. What was cold about it was this is a very interesting thing. Like my mother. Um, I think she started getting addicted to painkillers when uh, shortly after she had my daughter. I, mean, I had my sister. Sorry, not my daughter. I had my sister. Um, and she, and you know, I I wasn't really paying attention. Everybody was drinking or smoking something around me, so then you know, really didn't pay attention until I got a little older. Um, and you know, it just had been a thing. I'd always seen her dozing off or something like that of that uh, of that nature, but. There was this particular night that I felt very, very strongly like, you know what I mean? If she continues with this type of lifestyle, she's not going to be here. Now, in fact, I've been with my wife since I was 17 years old, actually high school sweetheart. So I was dating my wife at the time. And I told her on the on the phone, I said, I feel like, you know, one of these days she's not going to wake up. And that morning she didn't wake up. Wow. She died in my bed. And she died in my bed because I put her in the bed with my younger sister. I got my younger sister out of bed, put her in bed to sleep with mom, you know, and then in the morning, you know, I was going to go help her uh, get ready for school and whatever else and just let my mother get some rest. And I kissed my mother and I hugged her and I put her in the bed. She was crying. She was crying. And sometimes I go back and I feel like I wonder if she knew, like if she knew she had took too much, you know, it was obviously a lot of stress at home between her, uh, you know, and my dad at the time and so it was a it was a very tough time for her and what's interesting about it is is that she was in a program prior to this the only reason why she was back to home at that time is because she was kicked out of the program they were very very hard on my mother's program because she was not addicted to crack like everybody else who was inside the program so since the pill thing had not become such a epidemic at the time you know like we're seeing it now they really were very, very um, tight with her about schedule, coming back and whatever on time. Other people, they gave leniencies, but to her, they never really took her. And she, I remember her saying they don't take her serious. And, you know, uh, by that time, I'm, I'm positive because I even had other friends whose mothers and different things like that were in the program. She was the only one that went at that time. Those people were still alive. So it was, uh, it was a very, very tough time. You were quoted as saying your mother at the time was your best friend and you you would talk sure. to her all the time. You're trying to figure out, you know, people get to be with their parents for 50, 60 years. You had 19 right. years with your mother. 
You right. ask, is it really fair? And instead of becoming angry, it put you in a place of more compassion and it right. opened you up spiritually. Absolutely. Um, you, you, to backtrack, at age 13, you, you start finding music, you get expelled for bringing a gun to school. It, does that go part and parcel with the drugs or with the lifestyle that you think accompanies hip hop or are those part and parcel? Right. It wasn't really for the gun. It was for the threat. You know, I made a threat. <laughs> what you was know, the threat? I, I mean, I probably threatened to kill somebody or something <laughs> like that. That was yeah. a real, that was a real issue. And, and they took, you know, I mean, by that time I was already, you know, basically in the principal's office so much, you know what I'm saying? They could have put me on staff. Um, I was, I was, I was there like almost every day, religiously getting kicked out of class religiously. So it was like, that was the last straw, you know what I mean? And, um, and that was tough cause that kicked me out of the school district. And, and, you know, prior to that, you, you almost felt untouchable. Like none of those things would ever happen to you. And then I was really like in that system of being outside of school, being labeled as, you know, you know, potential threat and criminal to, to, it was very, very tough, very, very tough. But I think that went hand in hand with just like environment growing up, seeing what you see, you know, by this time I was running most of my uh, closest friends and my family was from GD and Gangster Disciple Nation. I was running with them at the time. Um, so, you know, very, very involved uh, from a street standpoint. And I think that that was obviously, you know what I mean? The natural outbreak of that, obviously you start getting guns, you start selling drugs, you, you know, you end up fighting every weekend for no reason, but um, that was it. So you're dealing, uh, what are you dealing? What type of stuff? I was, on, I was only dealing weed. I mean, I started getting into to, to dope right around the time. It's very interesting. At the time that I was up, right before I was about to start selling dope, my house burned down. My house burned down. I was, uh, this was like, this was the summer, summertime. It was on Father's Day. My house burned down. Now, what was so significant about the house burning down was they found inside of there a recipe <laughs> on how to, on how to cook, yeah. uh, you know, how to cook up, cook up crack. Right. So like, <laughs> it was so interesting because somebody had slid it to me because I was supposed to be getting something from somebody else. And, you know, I never cooked. I seen dope cooked in my house or whatever. But I never like paid attention. My parents, you know, although they were never like uh, uh, encouraging me in their lifestyle, they never hid it from me neither. But it definitely wasn't like, you know, let me show you how to do this neither. So a friend had wrote me an, a, a note on, on how to, you know, do it once I got whatever I got from a friend of mine. And the house burns down. And they find that. So investigators come over and now they got all of us lined up checking our handwriting. Right. So but the house burns easy. down and the note is fine. The note is there. The note was fine. The note was fine. You know, they, you know, they have to investigate because they need to make sure, yeah. especially for insurance purposes. If, you know, if this started on, you know, was it on purpose? Was it, you know, when they, you know, they had to go. And so while they're doing that, that's what they found in my room underneath my mattress. So, so please um, tell me you changed your handwriting so it didn't match. <laughs> you trying to squiggle your letters and stuff? No, I didn't write it anyway. So it yeah. was good. I didn't write it. Somebody wrote it for me. So, um, but I definitely went as far away from that handwriting as I possibly could when yeah. I did it. So um, if the handwriting don't fit, you must have quit. 
<laughs> so you're selling, you start using at some point. Yeah, I was smoking weed at nine already, at nine years old. Nine years old. So, yeah, so what, what happened was we were growing in, in the house. It was weed growing in the house. Um, in my room, my room was the room I had a big enough closet for the lights and everything like that, and insulation that happened. So they were growing inside my room. Now, I would have never touched it. I had a cousin uh, who I loved dearly, but was a horrible influence on me. Yeah. All right. Um, but he, he came over and... What happened, we had an uncle also living with us, and my uncle would go and sneak weed from the plants, you know what I mean? And um, so <laughs> my cousin said to me like this, he's like, listen, we're going to go tell, you know, uncle such and such, I'm not going to say his name, but we're going to go tell him that if he don't smoke weed with us, then we're going to tell on him. So we blackmailed him. <laughs> and... He's the first person we smoked with. My uncle was like 40 years old at this time. Like he's smoking weed with two nine-year-olds. Um, so that was the first time I started smoking weed. And and I wasn't something consistent until I was in the sixth grade. In the sixth grade, I was smoking like every day. You know what I mean? F- completely frying my brain cells. Yeah. Um, we talk about the legacy uh, of the the notion of crime and drugs in your family, but your grandparents had also been musicians at some point and played alongside greats like Ray Charles and Quincy Jones. Mm-hmm. So yeah. does that trickle down uh, amongst all the badassness that you're being exposed mm-hmm. to and the criminal activity, where does mm-hmm. the art start to come in? I mean, the art was there. My my parents pioneered hip hop. So my father and my mother were part of the first hip hop group um, in Seattle, Emma Street Boys and Emma Street Girls. So um, on top of that, on both sides. So my grandfather and all his brothers were amazing musicians. On my father's side, his all of his uncles also too were amazing musicians, played with those listed that you said. And then after my parents split when I was two, when my um, mother um, remarried to my stepfather, who I don't refer to his stepfather, he's my dad, he raised me. Um, so he definitely deserves that term and, you know, been an amazing, amazing uh, father for me growing up. Um, but he, even his family, all his uncles also too played were world, you know, world-class, his grandfather and his uncle uh, uh, specifically. So I was surrounded around music. It was like I could never run from it or escape. Um, I started first with my, with my father's brother, my uncle R.C., uh, he was the first one to like really take me in to start making beats and to the studio and start to to really develop a love. So I developed a love for it very early on as a kid, very early on. Um, when do you start rhyming? When do you start considering yourself a rapper? Um, seriously, professionally, I would say 13 years old. That, that year, 13 years old. That's when I first wrote my first rap. I recorded with a uh, hip hop legend, Vitamin D, was an amazing, who still is an amazing producer. Um, from him, I ended up working with the guy Bean One, who's an amazing producer and legend. These are Seattle legends. And Jake One, who's probably now big everywhere. And, and every day he's produced for, you know, 50 Cent, Jay Z, like, you know, wh- whoever, a lot of big names. Um, so ended up landing a, a spot on his album, you know, a few years later on. So, uh, yeah, I, I started 13 years old. That was like when I really took it serious. And that's when everybody else took me serious. Original rapper name was D Black. Yeah, I started out on 13. By 13, I was Danger. 
Yeah. I went by Danger. And then finally, I mean, everybody in the streets called me D Black. And so I finally switched to that. I want to say when I was about 15 years old or something like that. Um, what is the first chunk of music like for you? What was it representing? I mean, it's young to start a career in hip hop. Right. So what were you, what were you spitting about? So it was the first three songs. The first three songs, one song was We Them Niggas, right? That was obviously <laughs> very, very gangster song. Um, the other one was a song called uh, You Need a Thug, uh, which was like a love song. Yeah. And then the other one was Why Today, which was more of like a conscious, like street song of like asking why, you know, why are things the way that they are? Um, and I was heavily influenced, I would say, at 13 by Nas. Maybe Nas, you know, was probably the biggest. That was who I was listening to the most by, by this time. And I feel like Nas played a big part in, uh, in my style and development uh, at, that, at that time. So you're playing live, you're recording. Are you making money at this point? No, I didn't start really making money uh, with it until I got a little bit older, until maybe after my first album when I was 19 or whatever. And that was just straight gorilla doing shows, selling CDs out the trunk, getting kicked out of the malls, getting kicked out of the, the everything you can you can imagine. If it was there and we could sell, we got kicked out, you know. Um, and also, I would say, you know, around around these these the the younger years, from 13, 15, I was really just just developing myself. We we ended up uh, the the label I was an independent label I ended up taking over um, half of the label actually as I got a big sporting but, life right um, sporting life yeah. right right so we had a club night so every night you know I was performing in clubs like you know from fourteen fifteen six I couldn't even I couldn't even go into the clubs you know I had to go in with security walk on go do my thing on the stage and then go off but like you know I was doing that at least once a week. And then as it started to grow a little bit more, it was like a few nights a week, I was going to different clubs that I couldn't go into um, without security. <laughs> so you released two albums, 2006, mm -hmm. Cause and Effect, 2009, Aaliyah. Uh, after mm -hmm. Cause and Effect, you're, at this point in time, your husband. Tell me about your wife, high school sweetheart. Why right. do you decide to get married so early? Um. It, it was it was amazing because my wife, like it was already in the bag for me. You know, once we we started to date, I was already knew I was gonna make her my wife. Um, we fell in love with each other very young, and and by the time that we actually started dating, you know, I was actually very involved in Christianity at the time, and she was obviously also too very very involved. And around the time, shortly after we had met. Is when I I got like this uh, potential offer. It wasn't even a full on offer from from Virgin, and so at that point I wasn't even making rah rah music. My music was still very like still positive. It would even go in line with a lot of things I'm doing today. I'm still very current, but it was still very positive at the time. Um, and what they wanted to hear was some more of the gangster rap. Fifty Cent was big at that time. That was just like where hip hop was. So I started to shift, you know, my sound that way. And it wasn't foreign to me. This is how I grew up. I'm from, you know, this lifestyle. So it wasn't something like I had to role play too much, but only I really was because by this time I was already growing and developing and becoming a different person. 
So I got to a place where I was so confused when I was with my, with my, you know, my girlfriend, my wife, uh, my girlfriend at the time, I was different. You know, I was trying to be more positive. I wouldn't swear. I was like, you know, a different person. And then when I was around all my boys, I was already somebody else. So um, she really, really uh, was the rock through all of it to really keep me sane and keep me looking at like who I really was, you know? Um, so I don't think if it wasn't for her, you know, I definitely wouldn't have probably made it out of that lifestyle, even though I was the one who, you know, probably took the leaps uh, towards Judaism first, but it, it came from her being able to settle me and pull me out of that environment and saying like, we need to do something else. So you start questioning your Christian beliefs and turn to Messianic Judaism. Uh, and mm-hmm. then convince your wife to follow suit. Now, I uh, had a difficult enough time making my wife let us give our daughter a Jewish baby naming ceremony. And Andrew <laughs> said that he has enough trouble trying to convince his wife where to go for Thanksgiving. So right. <laughs> how how do you get on the same page and first of all go, our Christianity is leading us not the way I want to go spiritually. And then how do you take this leap to go, let's try Judaism? So what happened is I was always a a deeper thinker, right? Um, In terms of, I wouldn't say in terms of um, of intellectual thought, but deeper, like, you know what I'm saying? Very, very, very deep and very, very, what we would call tachlis. Like, let's get down to the point. What's What's the main thing? Uh, so it started with uh, me thinking back. When I finally picked up the Bible and started reading it again. I, it brought me back to my teenage years when I was in all the Bible study groups, you know, after participating in this uh, in, in the center. Oh, no, Nachman. Sorry. <laughs> Nachman, you have to go. Go get an Abba's bed. Go get an Abba's bed. Go get an Abba's bed. Then I was bit. Sorry. It happens to me all the time when I'm at home. My daughter comes downstairs. (laughs) And now I'm at the studio in Midtown, New York. So my co-host for my next show is going to come in. You'll hear him drunkenly yelling in about 20 (laughs) minutes. So he's worse than the kids. (laughs) No, no worries. worries. This guy, my two-year-old, he is like inseparable from me. Yeah, my daughter is the same way. How many kids do you have? (laughs) I have six. That's the way to do it. Oh, God. I need to spread my seed much more. (laughs) I'm trying to get my wife to do a second one. Investments, man. It was investments. (laughs) You never know know which one's going to hit the pot, you know? (laughs) Um, That's true. You don't know which one's going to take care of you, you know? Yeah. All right, I'm going to tell her. I'm going to miss him at six. We got to at least match his numbers. And I'll go, and I had a much uh, easier upbringing than him, so it should be easy. I'm already 48, though. I got I to gotta crank out five in the next three years. I don't know how I'm going to do man. that. Yeah, um, man. Okay, so, so I... We go so back I to was, when uh, you were younger, yeah. So I had a lot of questions inside of those groups, and... Um, and I wasn't like overly disturbed, but you know, now that I was alone, I was able to ask those questions again. Some of them were like, if you know, JC, Jesus, if he was Jewish, how come Christians aren't Jewish? You know what I mean? Uh, which religion came first, Islam, Judaism, and Christianity? Because the important point is that I grew up in a Jewish neighborhood. You know what I mean? So I was very, very like in, in terms of proximity, I was inside the Eruv, 
I used to walk through a a, a synagogue, a shul every day uh, to go to school. So um, I was very, very familiar with the fact that, you know, that there were Jews and they were very much a practicing and Saturdays was the day, but I didn't know too much beyond that. So I wanted to start investigating myself. So I started digging things up. And I think the first thing I came across was a, um, it was a video called Zeitgeist Refuted. Zeitgeist was a movie basically disproving Christianity and saying that it was no different than any other pagan, um, you know, religion that it came, came about and whatever. And it described all the, all the connections. So Zeitgeist Refuted actually agreed on most of these points, right? But then said that, yes, because a lot of these other things that have been attributed to Christianity, so to speak, never had anything to do with actual Christianity. You read the Bible. What was Christmas? What was Easter? None of these things are connected to Christianity at all. These are all pagan holidays and different things like that that were you know, instituted by the Catholic Church to make a smooth transition from paganism. But that even doesn't have anything to do with Christianity. You don't find it anywhere in the New Testament, right? So the first thing I started to notice was that there were holidays. Well, how come I never noticed that there were actual holidays inside the Bible, right? Passover is not just a story. This is a this was a holiday. Yeah. Uh, the the festival of Pentecost of Shavuot or Shavuot is this is actual. These are holidays. So that was the first thing to me that really started waking me up. And because the zeitgeist of few people were messianic, that opened me up to seeing Christianity in Jewish lenses. Right. So that's how I ended up taking the messianic route. And we were in that. Um, well, I would say for two years. And it was it, it, it was great to be able to be educated because some of the things are, are real. Right. So if you if you have a conversation between um, um, J.C. And, and and his disciples and he's talking about, you know, I, I'll never forget one thing where he says that, you know, if if uh, it's not what goes in the mouth, that's that makes a person unclean. It's what comes out. Right. So Christianity uses this as a riot that you don't need kosher anymore. He came, he did away with kosher food. Now, anybody knows in context, if two Jews are talking in Israel, in Jerusalem, 2000 years ago, they were never thinking about lion or eating tiger. Right. You understand what I'm saying? So there must have been something deeper to it. So when I start picking apart the Bible like that and start looking at it, and hold on, let me look at these through Jew- Jewish lenses or Hebraic lenses, and I say, wow, the story becomes much more Jewish, right? So that was the first step for us. Then as we started to grow and we started to progress and being able to start learning things like the Talmud and learning the Midrash and learning that there was so much more, um, the more and more that even Messianic Judaism started to look more and more foreign from what is going on in actual Judaism and Orthodox Judaism. And you start to see a lot of different inconsistencies there. So I think the first thing that that I did was I started to reason and think to myself, right? And I started to say like this, it was very simple. A lot of the things were very simple. They were hard at the time, it's simple. I would say that if God wants me to believe in Islam, then I would have to believe that God changed his mind a couple of times, right? He came, he made a revelation, guys messed up. So then he, he brought he brought a prophet, JC, and he came to fix it. It's still messed up. So Muhammad had to come and make the final stamp. And, you know, so God strung it along that many years, a long time until he got it right, right? That was hard for me to believe. If I had believed in Christianity, 
then I would have had to believe that at least once God messed it up and he needed to come and set it straight. And now there's all new rules. Um, Judaism was the only thing that was stable, that the Harsinai story never changed. It was consistent all throughout. And the fact that God would never change, he would never leave the Jewish people and the prophecies. How can you look over these prophecies that God is saying to the Jewish people, even after the Tokacha, even if Hashem says, you're this, you're that, you're that, you're this, all of the prophecies inside the Bible end in words of restoration and menuch and longing. And I came to a point like this, and this is going to sound crazy, but it's, it's, it's very, very real. It's going to sound crazy. I came to the conclusion right, that the, the proof in the existence of God is the Jewish people themselves. That's it. Because biblically speaking, the whole entire integrity of God and everything that he says is based upon these future promises that there will be a Jewish people. There's going to be a Jewish land, homeland. Jerusalem will be its capital. There's going to be a king. Now, say we right now, we don't have all of those things. We don't have every single thing. But there for sure is a Jewish people when there shouldn't be in the light of everything that's happened throughout all the years of Jewish history, right? So that gives a, a amazing proof. Like even if I meet a person, he says, oh, I'm atheist, I'm Jewish. You're the proof that there's a God because God is his whole entire existence. He's saying it's based on the fact that there has to be a Jewish people at the end. Right. And look at where we are still now. So this so isn't... I came to some wild conclusions. Yeah, and, and it's not an instantaneous revelation to you. It's something no, that you put sure. a lot of thought into. And then yeah. you do this incredibly badass thing because after Aaliyah drops in 2009... Album spends five weeks at number four. Uh, it's it's regular rotation on MTV. You decide I'm going to renounce my belief in Jesus and Christianity. You don't support the album's message anymore. You're unable mm-hmm. to quit your contract, so you agree to promote it, but refuse to accept the money outside of touring expenses or perform on Shabbat. Very badass yeah. thing. You know, the most right. badass thing I've done to this point in time is uh, create a hot sauce called Badass Jews Hot Sauce, which you can get <laughs> on SilkCityHotSauce.com using the code BADASS. And it's not kosher, but all the ingredients are kosher. It is so good, it'll make you feel verklempt. But you walk away from, you, you, you have a hit, and you go, I don't believe in this anymore. It, it's mm-hmm. a really gangster motherfucking thing to do, to walk away and just go, these are my beliefs. Because after all these years, you hit it, and you go, no, Judaism's more important than this surface level success, right? Right. Absolutely. So 2011. I think the the, yeah, that was Go no, ahead. that was actually it was 09 that came out. 2009. I think, yeah, they, and I I was still going on. I think the last thing I did in in 11, which I was already done by this point, but I think I headlined in um I I headlined a show at a what's that? South by Southwest. Yeah. Right? And I remember, I will never forget it, because that year was the year that uh, I'm good friends with, I was at least at one point, uh, Boys with Macklemore. Um, he, he was popping that year. So that was the last time I actually seen seen Mac. We were both playing in South by Southwest. Um, so I remember that, that that transition of that time when it actually happened. Most people say like, oh, you stopped in 2011, came back at 12. No, 09 was the last album that I actually had put out. And I think we had put together some more and they maybe released another record, you know, uh, a, a year or so after that. But I was done by 2010 for sure. Like but I was, 09 I is also this thing. You, you, you're you up for the role of Biggie Smalls in the biopic. Right. Notorious. Right, so, right, right, right. Fox, Fox had reached out to us. They came. I did a, 
audition for Biggie's thing. Yeah, yeah, for the Biggie. How was movie. your Biggie impression? Did you do like an impression, <laughs> or did you embody it? You know, I was still, I was too, um, I was too, I was too Biggie in it. You know what I mean? I really had studied Biggie. You know, by this time, and you I lived was, that I was, life. I was like a, Biggie. a yeah, different yeah. coast, but you lived that life. You're for sure, swinging on for the sure. streets. Uh, you were rapping sure. since a young age. I mean, mm-hmm. who did they go with? What was the name of the guy? With another guy named Jamal Jamal Henderson. I can't remember what his last and was, name. Was Jamal was something. he like an archetypal Biggie, or was he just an actor that they're like, okay, you got some extra weight on you, you can play this role? <laughs> I, you know, to be honest with you, I I was so salty I didn't get the part. I never watched the movie. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> Never watched it. Kick in the doorway. Turn this shit off. Um, (laughs) I I want to uh, I I, want to turn more to you finding Judaism. And I also want to talk about the notion of and we've talked about this. Most of the people we talk to that are in the rap game are white moguls. Uh, And we find the similarity of Judaism and black culture because of struggle and because of perseverance. What you've dealt with this a lot as a black Jew, anti-Semitism, and you're not born Jewish, but I find it weird that you've still had to deal with it. Give me some. Andrew knows some of these examples, hardcore. Andrew, can you ask about these examples of anti-Semitism that he's seen at very high levels? Yeah, you know, uh, you know, my my first question would sort of be when when you. uh when you were on stage with Macklemore, uh, Macklemore got into some controversy a few years ago uh, mm-hmm. with uh, one of the costumes he wore for uh, the right. thrift shop song. I'm curious, how was your interaction with him? And did you reach out to him afterwards and and open up dialogue? I did. I did reach out to him. I never heard. I never heard from him. Um, he actually didn't get back to me. And I think I don't think it was anything personal. I think it was just he was being slammed by so many people. You know what I mean? Um, at that time that, you know, he probably just didn't want to bring up the conversation again. But I was I was on the defensive, really, uh, on that. I really didn't think uh, that was his intention, was to come out in that type of way. You know what I mean? Um, you talk about a guy who just, like, you know, as long as i known, has always been a funny guy, loves to make jokes, loves the crap, you know what I mean? But to, like, be involved in a way, he would definitely fight about something he believes to be true, right? That's That's very clear by him. But I definitely didn't think he did that intentionally to try to, you know, uh, be anti-Semitic. I didn't I didn't feel like that. But I definitely want to reach out to him and, you know, and, and let him know that, you know, at least I support him and, and that I know he wasn't. And if he wants to have a conversation, we could do it. OK, excellent. just just for those of for those of you that don't know, uh, Macklemore went out on stage wearing a costume that had, I believe, a, a large nose and and was not not explicitly Jewish, but certainly could have been uh, perceived right. as as anti-Semitic. Right. Uh, and then you know, there's 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 certain level of of anti-Semitism within within the rap community with people right. like uh, Ice Ice Cube uh, has mm-hmm. gotten into trouble. I actually had a, a conversation with Mort Klein. Uh, have Have you found any bridges with 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 these people? Have you opened up any dialogues? Right now, a lot of conversations on the table to actually have those conversations. Um, Cube's been very busy because of backlash that he got recently with his new plan and different things like that. But my team has definitely, like, 
and, and the truth is, is that I've been trying to shy away a little bit from having those conversations because I felt like, you know, we're not gonna, we're not gonna try to um, turn this narrative. Now I talked to Omari Yehoshaphat Sotomayor, and he did talk to Nick, right? So he did have a conversation with Nick. Um, but I sort of wanted to do those things a little bit behind, behind the door a little bit. And my whole thing was when I, when it first hit me was sort of like him, Steven Jackson, Deshaun Jackson, all, all of it. This was all hitting the Wiley tweets. Everything was started to hit right around the same time what Cube was tweeting out or whatever. And my, my whole thing was to people that kept on hitting me up, Nisim, you got to say something, you got to say something, you got to say something, you got to say something. Like, listen, like the book's been written we won this already. <laughs> you know what I'm saying? Like, that's been my whole entire thing with it. Just like, we've already won. Like, we're not going to give any of these guys the satisfaction of, of going back and forth. Now, later on, I did feel like, you know, okay, maybe a dialogue is appropriate. But, you know, the way I feel, man, is just like, man, the book's been sealed. Like, we're winning. <laughs> you know what I'm saying? It's like, and anybody that wants to win needs to hop on, you know? So, um, and not be against. Now, the whole thing's a joke because especially guys like these guys and at their caliber being in the entertainment uh, industry, for sure they didn't got probably multiple checks, if not all of them, that have passed through Jewish hands. You know what I mean? So it's just almost like, a, a you know, somewhat of a slap in the face and, and my and my own personal, uh, personal experience and my own personal belief. We have this great badass moment when you're, going through a time of struggle and near the end of your conversion process in 2012 your son develops meningitis had to be hospitalized which is a, a huge blow to any family but you're financially strapped at the time you're praying and you then discover that this long broken microphone starts working again and you by the way your name Nisim, mm -hmm. means miracle right means miracles right uh you find this mic starts working again. You take this as a sign to return to music. Right. So, A, right. your son is okay now? Yes, he's okay. Great. He came out unscathed, thank God. B, you, you start making music again, but with right. a much more newly religious bent to it, right? Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Um, I think more more spiritual and uplifting, you know? Okay. I, I mean, I think at the beginning, at the beginning, yeah, it definitely started off much more geared towards the religious community. Um, but even after sitting with rabbis and other influential people in my life, I just like, listen, you great. That's very, very good. But there's plenty of that in the world. You're you. You have a ability to be a bridge and to speak to people that would never hear words of positivity or words about Judaism or anything like that, unless you, you know cast that net you're going to be stuck inside of this thing and that's not what you were here for and i really felt in my heart at that time it was something i was really running from like you know what i mean even i came back i i would say from that moment on the microphone from that microphone starting to work again which means i prayed i asked for that sign i said that this is it's the only way i'm gonna touch you know a mic again and really do that is that if this microphone works that microphone worked i recorded a whole album on that microphone from then all the way up until now, I have tippy-toed. Even releasing everything I did, I've tiptoed because I always felt like I was supposed to be doing what I'm doing right now. Like 
taking everything that I have and everything that ends up being positive influences, spreading it to the world. But I tiptoed because I was worried every time, like, am I doing really what I'm supposed to be doing? Am I, maybe it's wrong, you know, doubting, a lot of self-doubt, you know, will hold a person back more than anything else. Do you feel when your music is so positive and then negative things happen in your life, obviously it funnels its way in. And I guess it's your job as an artist to try and take that negativity and turn it into something positive because there is something negative that happens. We talk about the notion of legacy. Your children are subjected or had been subjected to racial discrimination by several yeshivas, right? Being denied admission Mm -hmm. because Mm -hmm. of their race. How does that hit you when you're a man that transcends race? That turned into motherland bounce. Okay. It goes you know into the mean? art. Yeah. <laughs> it oh. goes into the art, you know? Um, and it's, and, and I can't say that, you know, all the time in, in every place, but like a lot of people want to know what really spun that song was like, sort of like, um, going through that, trying to get the kids into schools and, and dealing with that. Now, mind you, this is so microscopic. This is something so small compared to the amount of love and the chesed and everything that I have. Long before I was famous or anything like that in the Jewish world, I've never experienced love like that. I never experienced acceptance like that, right? Um, but at the same time, growing up in society, I also never faced that type of discrimination. I never thought I would have to. You understand what I'm saying? So um, that put me in a very, very interesting place. And people are saying to me, like, how could you, like, continue and, and be who you are? It's like, man, I came here to, to Judaism and everything, I, every step that I made was for God. I fell in love with God, right? He didn't say my kids couldn't go to this school. This person did. <laughs> you know what I'm saying? So the way that I looked at it was just sort of like, you know, if my color happens to be an issue or whatever, I'm going to show you how much my color is an issue. You know what I mean? I'm going to show you how proud of who I am and how proud I am of being a Yid, how proud I am of being Jewish. And I really think that that fuel that I took from that is what led to motherland bounce so that interaction with your children not being allowed into the into the yeshiva into the school led you to a rabbi uh who i guess can best be described as the the jay-z of the rav game uh chaim kanievsky <laughs> i never heard that comparison right? <laughs> he, he definitely is considered if not the, if not the, you know, one of the main leaders in, in, of the Jewish world, there yeah, for sure. So he he said something to you that you said stops your world, right? For sure. So he said, being black is your mal, your mela, not your chesaron. Can you explain what that means and how it right. impacted you? A, right. So what he said to me was that you being black is 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 uh, your mila, excuse me, is, which means it's your virtue. It's your virtue. It's not your kisar. It's not a lacking. This is not something that's bad that you have to look down upon. Now, what a lot of people fail to realize, right? A lot of times you say you, you don't judge Judaism by the Jews, right? Um, but the one thing you can judge, judge Judaism by is by the leaders, the real leaders, the true leaders of, of the Jewish world. Because although the schools may have felt that they, that they were, the, you know, all of them unanimously would revere this person. And this is what he's saying. This is what he's saying. That this is a this happens to be a, a great thing and a virtue for you, not something that you should feel 
that is a lacking or anything like that. So, um, you know, I definitely uh, took that with me into the booth on Motherland Bounce. <laughs> you don't just change yourself, you change the people around you. Uh, your biological father, who was a drug dealer, then became a Christian theologist, right? Uh, <laughs> right. You guys must have the most interesting conversations, you know, right. over holidays. Is it amazing to see that transition? Did that happen before you changed yourself? Yeah, it actually did. And I think it had some positive effect on me even because, uh, you know, my father, you know, had, you know, lived that lifestyle before. He was uh, very involved in, in the drug game, like, you know, a big drug dealer. Um, and he, he changing his life. I think he had did some time in prison, which was the opposite, right? We talked about how many people go to Islam. He actually, um, became a Christian inside, inside the prison. And when he got out, he further pursued that. He ended up going to school, becoming a minister, a minister, graduating, got a master's doctorate. And he founded his own Bible college. Even I'm talking about, he was just going. And it's an amazing thing. We talk about tikkun, tikkun olam, you know, we think about fixing things. The, the amazing thing that he did now, he stands as a head director of an addiction program. He's a man who used to sell drugs. He's the head director of a, of a of addiction program. He passes a church. So I have watched, you know, my father, like, just grow and become somebody, like, to really look at and really just be like, wow. Even though we're not in the same religion, it's not the same faith, right? You can't say that God didn't just do a number on him. You know what I mean? So um, he's definitely been somebody that's been inspiring. And I think like, as we both have grown, um, he's just as proud and has received just as much inspiration from seeing my growth and everything that I've been able to accomplish also too. So um, it's very, very interesting conversations, but never debates. You know, that's one of my things about it also too, is it's sort of like, you know, there's so much um, commonality between you know, the Abrahamic religions of things that we just already all agree on, you know what I'm saying? Um, that that you don't even have to get into areas of contention and all that. You got a long list of other things that you can already be on the same page about, you know what I mean? Um, so it's much easier to fight being a Republican or a Democrat, you know what I'm saying? So <laughs> who would have thought that today the most peaceful thing you can be is like religious. Like, you know what I'm saying? Like, the taboos have all changed now. It's all changed. You move to Israel. You're a celebrity. They tell you, expect maybe there's going to be a camera when you get off the plane. You get off the plane. There's tons of cameras there. Uh, your life has changed since you moved to Israel. You got over 18 million YouTube views. Your career's had this great resurrection and gone to new heights. Tell me how important it is for you to live in the Holy Land from where you came from. It's, it's so amazing. I think the biggest thing is to be able to give my kids a life that I never even dreamed of, right? Literally, I would have never dreamt that this was would be the lifestyle that, you know, I'm, going, I'm saying all this, I break my teeth on Hebrew every day, but my kids are like fluent. They're like Israelis um, uh, completely. And, and to watch them grow up and to live a life that, that I didn't have, it just brings me so much gratification, so much matters to be able to see 
um, you know, what we've been able to build, me and my wife, you know, for our family. So it's important to be here for that. One of the biggest things was um, for us also too, was for them to be able to see the diversity of Judaism. When you're in Eretz Israel, the truth is that when you're living in Israel, you see Jews of all different colors, all different backgrounds. And, and, um, and that was something that was also important uh, to, to move here for. Um, so it's very, very important. And I think the resurrection on the career and coming to Israel, you have to realize, I had no idea. I had just put out a single um, with uh, Israeli artist uh, God Elbaz, you know, maybe a month and a half, two months before, you know, I, I left. Now, prior to that, some people knew me. It wasn't like people didn't know who I was. A few, you know, people, I mean, but now it was on a different level. So I wasn't expecting to get off of the plane. They're playing the song in the airport. It was like a whole, like, crazy to have reporters coming to, to my place that night at, like, 10 o'clock in the morning. I had no idea that, you know what I'm saying, this was up again. And I didn't know I wasn't going to be able to just walk down the street normally like everybody. I wasn't expecting that. So it's it, it, it actually it has been a beautiful thing, as tiring as it may get sometimes, but it's been a beautiful thing to be able to see and be able to be embraced. Um uh, in that way, which is interesting because I did the same thing in a sense. I embraced Jewish, the Jewish people. I embraced the Torah. I embraced, and 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 it's almost like you know God designed it in a way for people to give me those hugs back. I end every badass Jew episode with a question, but I think for you it's different because most badass Jews I talked to were born Jewish and mm -hmm. it's mm -hmm. not their life. You started as a badass, became a Jew. You are now a badass Jew to everybody. I don't know <laughs> if you know it. What is your advice to young people searching for meaning or trying to live their dream? I think uh, my advice is to to never, and I know this is going to sound cliche, but to never give up. You know, uh, one of the things you just said, amazing thing about my career is I had periods where I thought I retired. I started at 13. I'm 33. So that makes me a 20-year veteran. I think that's 20 years. I don't know if I graduated. Anyway, so, and you have six I'm kids. I'm 48 and I have one. <laughs> 33. So that's 20 years. You know, I've been doing this and now seeing things to be able to, to go in a way and at a time where I've never been so much more comfortable with who I am and why I am in life, spiritually, emotionally, um, you know, and, and, and being able to be comfortable with who I am because I, I, I never, I never, I never gave up believing in myself and believing in my abilities. So I think that's the biggest thing is like to never give up, never give up hope. You know, as my rabbi would say, Rabbi Nachman, there's no such thing as despair in the world at all. Thank you for doing badass Jews. You're an inspiration. Thank you. It's been an absolute pleasure. Thank, Thank you. Thank you so much. Appreciate it. <laughs>